Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing Dr. Elizabeth Alvarez, who is the superintendent at Forest Park District 91 and the president of IALAS. Dr. Elizabeth Alvarez, who are you? Oh my goodness. Well, first, um, good morning and thank you for this. Uh, who am I? Um, I honestly just feel like I'm a human being um, on this earth temporarily and we only get this moment time to do certain things. And so I live my life with ministry and passion and wanting to leave behind a better world, a better place. Because again, I'm just visiting for a little bit. And, um, you know, and I get the privilege of living sometimes a little longer than some of, of my other people. You know, some don't get to be on this earth as long as others. And so you got to do what's right and do what's best and be kind to others and understanding. And so that's, I, I had to really think about that because normally before I would have answered, um, I'm a woman. I'm a mother. Uh, I'm an educator. But honestly, now at this age, I'm 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 just a human being, um, visiting and doing what's right on earth. And uh, when I don't do what's right because of mistakes, reflect on it, be thoughtful, and 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 get better the next day. That is very profound, Elizabeth. Can you, uh, so we can understand uh, this type of answer, can you walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Sure. Ooh, um, so uh, becoming a, a, a teacher uh, became a passion of mine right out of high school. Um, I do share my story a lot and how I didn't have the best uh, education in my elementary years. And then my high school teachers really like lit my fire and allowed me to just really feel that uh, educators were um, just the answer and they had so much power. Uh, many of us in that, that high school went into education because of the my high school teachers. And so started into education, um, became a teacher, became a middle school science teacher, um, started out in Little Village, was there for nine years, thought I would retire there, um, loved my children there. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that happened to me during those early years is that um, I was outliving many of my children. Um, weekends would happen and I would come on a Monday and find out um, one of my, my, uh, my babies um, was taken away um, because of gang violence. Um, and so that was, that was really hard for me because at the time I thought, oh, I can't do this anymore. Um, And I wasn't really necessarily educating, even though I would plan for like an hour long of science. Sometimes it became 30 minutes and sometimes it became 15 minutes because before SEL was anything of SEL, I was doing a lot of social emotional um, support for my students who um, like me, as I mentioned, being a human being um, felt like their lives were, were going to be short. Um, And why would we want to even learn about science when the world out there cannot be as welcoming and understanding? Um, and so my life as an educator became one of mom, became one of I'm here to listen to you, um, to understand them and allow them to, to cry um, because sometimes they didn't have that at home either. Um, I eventually left. Um, and went to Sawyer, which is by Gage Park. <clears throat> and very differently, um, all of a sudden I realized I was teaching. So my, my lesson plans changed from, you, girl, you got to start planning a little bit more because my students there were just ready to learn. <clears throat> and um, honestly, I feel it was there that I became a better teacher um, because when I was at Eli Whitney, I didn't really get to practice that part of curriculum and teaching and learning because they go hand in hand. I could teach. It doesn't mean they're learning. Um, but definitely it was there. 
at Sawyer, um, and I spent my years there, four years, um, teaching eighth grade science, um, and then becoming a coach for math and science um, in Chicago Public Schools. And um, that was a trajectory from leaving being with children, and then all of a sudden you're working with adults. And that's a whole different realm, you know, doing adult uh, learning, um, because everyone is at different points, and um, it's a lot of understanding where they're coming from and what they understand, um, how they are really getting the background of our children. And um, so I, I did that for about three years. Um, and at the time, they were called areas. And I was in Area 10, um, working there, um, basically providing them science, professional learning, and taking their teachers out to different places to understand how to really uh, do field trips. And it's not about like just going to the, sh the shop, you know, <laughs> to buy things. It's really about what are the things you're going to pinpoint at this field trip for our children that link to what you're teaching. And then more importantly, what are they taking back so that when parents get an opportunity to take them there, that they are continuing their learning. And this, this was really important to me to like, not only understand the exploring, and the explaining um, of field trips and in science, but um, really get into that engagement part. So they were, it was called the five E's that we were learning about. Um, and then um, uh, Ernesto Matias, I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, he um, was he, in my show a, a couple of weeks ago. I saw that, I saw that. <laughs> he was a principal at the time at Canoon. And he said, Liz, are you ever thinking of, of going into administration? And in my head, I was like, no, teaching is it. Um, he had told me, you know, there's an opening right now um, at a school for an assistant principalship. And lo and behold, that, that school was like walking distance from where I lived. And in my head, I thought, no way possible am I going to get hired there. Um, and I did. Um, and I had the honor and privilege of working under Victor Simon, um, who is the superintendent at Burridge right now. Um, I was a superintendent for two years. And, you, you know, Victor's trajectory, um, you know, he was moving out and about. Um, and the first thing he told me was, you got to get on the principal list. And I'm like, why? Why do I want to do that? I just became an assistant principal. He's like, no, no, you got to get on the principal list. Um, and so I started working and got in the principal list. And during that time, I got to meet uh, Rachel Curtis, Elizabeth City, um, when I was working to become a principal. Um, and they were really instrumental in my thinking about uh, my strategies and becoming a leader. Um, I still use their work till to this, to this day. Um, and Victor went on to become a chief and then later on a superintendent. And so I became an interim principal there at, at Door Elementary. And um, I remember telling them like, you should continue to look at other candidates. You should not just settle because I was the assistant principal. I'll go through the same interview process because um, I wanna be treated exactly the same. And I want you to feel good that you're hiring the right person. And so that's why I decided don't hire me right away. Give me six months and see how you feel about it. So I did six months of like interim principal, knowing that if I wasn't chosen, I would not get that position. Um, and they, they did. They took me on as principal and I was there for a good six years. Um, and they probably were one of my happiest. I will tell you that. Um, it was so good being a principal, um, being around the teachers, being around uh, the students, the parents, it was the one role you really got to know with the relationship building in each of those levels, like even um, the community level, um, knowing who they were, where they live, what's important to them. Um, I don't think I, I have gotten that kind of feeling um, in any more of my roles, like it was principalship. Um, and so then after principalship, I got a promotion and became chief of schools in Network 8. Um, and um, there was no um, like support going from principalship 
principalship to chief. Um, it was one of the things I did to tell Chicago public schools, like you really need to support that transition because it, it was not easy. It was not easy. Um, you get 32 schools um, and you want to do well. You want, you want them to, to know that you're there to support them. Um, and it was, it was rough. I remember those first years were really rough. And it was my, my last, because I was there for five years. Um, the first two years um, were really like you're on um, this sink or swim. And a lot of times, you know, people talk about being that, you know, the, the feet like this, just paddling and you're steady on top. Um, but you're just nervous the entire time. And the last three years, um, we did some really wonderful work at Network 8. Um, we did some equity work. We did some observation feed work, uh, work uh, with Bambrick's work. We did um, uh, Joel Fellman work. Um, we were out there and about um, through some serious work. And my principals were troopers. They were champions. They, I went through the pandemic with them. Um, we went through the, the racial uh, unrest that was happening after the murder of George Floyd. And then we had the loitering that happened in our schools. Um, when in Chicago, you know, you know, people went out there and started looting. And some of my schools got hit where computers were taken away. Um, and then we came back in June and we're like, what just happened? Um, and I remember just speaking to them and using um, um, the, the words of be calm and be the calm um, because you as a leader need to be that calm um, for others. And that being the calm came from Brene Brown because I was really listening to her a lot um, and thinking about like, how do you get through um, this craziness that we're going through? And we're thinking the pandemic's gonna be like two, three weeks. And it was like four years. No one would ever think that four years of, of like being nervous and walking out there and like, okay, I'm not going to be near you and wearing a mask and, you know, walking outside and it's just eerie. Um, the schools were eerie. A lot of crying was happening. Um, and um, at that moment where everyone was like going through this, I realized I probably needed a change and um, interviewed for Forest Park and, um, now there I am. I'm in Forest Park, my second year, and uh, we're still dealing with the pandemic. And you still still feel it with uh, the community and the teachers and um, my children. And um, I'm at a point now where I feel like there's a lot of people behaving badly. And our children seeing the modeling of that and um, taking it on. And saying, well, this is how you behave. And then we're, we're wondering, like, why are our children misbehaving? And why are they acting this way? Because they see us. And they're seeing how we're dealing with it. And we ourselves need that SEL work that I just told you about in the beginning. Um, how are you supposed to go through teaching and learning when you yourself haven't really grasped those emotional changes and um, gotten that, that emotional genius that you need? to get through each and every day. And I feel like I'm now, like I went back to the 1990s where what was happening in Little Village and they were feeling all of that. And here I am now with that unrest again. Um, and at the same time saying, you were chugging along, we gotta move forward for the sake of our children and let's not look back and let's not, you know, think about that too much, but sometimes you have to slow down. But I, I have this urgency. Um, and so that's where I'm at right now. Wow. That, that's a, what a trajectory. Um, let's try to uh, uh, peel that onion. Uh, let me ask you, um, of all the professions in the world, at some point you decided you were going to be a teacher. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about uh, uh, the story? Yeah, so um, I, I shared this before in, in elementary years. I had teachers um, um, 
that didn't see me necessarily being part of curriculum. Um, any books we read uh, dealt with um, white males and what they brought to the United States and anybody else was invisible or were not important. And they, they let it known to, to me because I was a person of color and I was attending um, an all white school. Um, and when adults treat children in that way, um, children do the same. As I mentioned, they model what they see. And so my walks from home to school were one of, of, you know, of fear where you thought you were going to be hurt. And sometimes the hurt came with just name calling, but sometimes it came with rock throwing, um, snowballs being hit, um, uh, being called like really derogatory uh, words for, for Mexicans, for being, you know, the first Mexicans living there. My brothers and sisters, I remember they really were protecting me because they were older than I was. And I always talk about just feeling safe behind my Mexican door and just like kind of smelling the food my mom was cooking and saying, okay, ya estoy en la casa, ya estoy, you know, bien. And then also, um, and we talk about this now in curriculum, like being stripped away from your language, because I didn't learn Spanish because my parents feared of how I would be ridiculed or because of having an accent or being ridiculed for speaking another language. And you had to learn English and be the norm so that you could be looked upon as American. Um, what was the, the norm of what an American was? But, you know, you look at me and my skin, you know, and you have like, yo soy cara de nopal. And, you know, um, and that's a saying, like, you're, you're a face of a cactus, um, where people immediately would be like, where are you from? And I'd be like, I'm from here, Chicago. No, really, where are you from? I'm from Chicago. Where are you from? And you finally have to say, well, my parents are from Mexico. Oh, yeah, you're Mexican. And only here in the United States, you get those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. Um because you're not a true American um, in their eyes. And you're just, I, I'm always boggled by that. I'm like, no, I was born here. I was raised here. I speak English. Um, and to this day, you get that. Um, and I tell that to to uh, my white allies all the time. Or I say, like, no one asks you where you're from. Um, immediately, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're American. Um, and some of them may have just immigrated here. And they're, they're looked upon as being very American. So I really wanted to become a teacher um, for social justice. I wanted to become a teacher to allow my students to really kind of balance that, what is really happening in the world, how you fit in the world. And science was the best place to be for that um, because it's so abstract. Um, there are concepts in science that allow you to understand who you are, how you're here, uh, the psychology behind why people right away think other of you and give you other. Um, and I taught middle school because it is one of the most hardest years. Um, it's a horrible time to be. We're 12, 13, 14 year old. Your, your hormones are going nuts. Um, you feel like the whole world is crushing on you. And at the same time, you're at the center of the universe. So uh, it's just such a difficult time, middle school. And that's where I wanted to be because um, I wanted to give power to their voice. And I had such great middle schoolers who many of them have reached out and I, they, they're like, wa have watched me as well. Um, they were there when I was working on my doctorate and many of them were part of my dissertation where I was using their voice because my dissertation was the power of storytelling and science. And um, my children were, were talking about things that were happening in their house. Um, you know, they were talking about their mom's cooking. Uh, they were talking about, you know, making menudo <clears throat> or making pozole and what it meant. And so I would use those stories to talk about matter, to talk about, um, you know, condensation, to talk about... Um, you know, um, the periodic table, all of that stuff to let them to understand like, yeah, everything that you're doing, the things that your parents are doing, the cooking has everything to do with these elements. 
Um, and we had some really great conversations uh, and storytelling that they were bridging and um, walking out of there saying, oh, I understand it now. You got the aha moment. Yes. Um, and I left, you know, that kind of wrote um, kind of um, uh, the way I was learned. Uh, I left it behind and said, no, I'm going to my, my students are going to help me become a better teacher. And storytelling was where it was. And it allowed me to really re remember who I was, you know, because before here I was trying to be like kind of whitewashed um, and, you know, not speaking Spanish and um, saying, you know, like, no, no, you know, I'm not even from 26th Street. You know, I'm, I'm here teaching the children to 26th Street, you know, like who was I thinking I was a savior. Um, and they were really saving me and reminding me, you know, you know, it is Latina. And that's that's a powerful thing. And that's that's something that you should be using um, in your leadership and the power of being a Latina, um, which there's not many of us. And now here is in superintendency. There are four of us in the state of Illinois. That's it. Um, next year, there's going to be five of us. Um, uh, uh, the woman who took over for me, Lucila uh, Davila, she is now going to be a superintendent. She now makes number five of Latinas in the state of Illinois. And I will tell you, um, the five of us don't really even talk. And then to me, that makes me really sad because if we did, um, how much stronger we would be. And the reason we don't, it's not because we dislike each other. It's because we're so busy. We're in this district and we're, we're trying to trudge along and the people we're keeping in contact with are the ones that are around us, the, the district superintendents. And we rarely get to see each other. I mean, because of conferences and stuff. And then we touch base and how's it going? And um, you don't have that time. And you, you need to do that, um, particularly because there's, there's not many of us. Um, and so when I think about like people who are around me and, and supporting me, it's, it's my, my white allies again, the white men who are superintendents. And when I walk into those rooms and one of the few women in there, because there's also, you know, not many women. Um, and I want to say there's only 11 Latino superintendents in the state of Illinois. I could be wrong, but you could check my math, Efrain. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's about 11 of us and then four Latinas. So the rest are, are male um, we don't, we don't necessarily have that support. You will see when you go to conferences, like now they're saying we're trying to do for Latino leadership. Um, um, I know that UIC is building that same thing, trying to build people of color. Um, and, um, there's, there's that five of us now that they should be reaching out to saying, how did you do it? How did you make it there? And it was not easy, not easy at all. Wow. Wow. Um, I'm going <laughs> to right? There's so much there. Um, I, I have always been curious uh, for the listeners of the show. Uh, I also work in Chicago Public Schools and I had a, a couple of uh, great encounters with Elizabeth. It always uh, dawned on me that most um, uh, educators like me uh, have the EDD at the end of the, the okay. name and you have a PhD, can you tell, can you share with the listeners and viewers of the show um, uh, when you decided to do that and why? Sure. Um, so PhD people always say like, um, oh, our doctorate is more so the DDDs, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, here's, the, here's the reason why we say that. Because it takes so much longer. Um, there's research that has to be done. And not only the practical part where EDD comes in with the practice, <clears throat> there's the research um, that you have to delve in of others who may have started it and you are um, um, using some of the research and saying, this is what I'm doing with it. And um, you also have to present a lot. So you have to go, and I, um, I, I'm trying to remember how many presentations I had to go to. And ARA is right here in Chicago. And that's what I was doing yesterday. And so it was interesting to see a lot of my 
past classmates who are now professors. And I decided to go in this trajectory where I'm a superintendent. And they, they had all these questions for me as well. But you have to do all this research and then present it and explain to them how you are using someone else's research and then building up your own research and, and developing your dissertation or developing your next work. Um, and that's where the PhD comes in because um, it's the, the philosophy of all of that. And so there's many books. I mean, I when, when children have, always find out I'm a doctor, they always say, oh, do, can you, you prescribe like medicine? And I, I think that's hilarious when they ask it. I said, no, no, no. Um, I'm like, if you need a, a couple of books to read, I will tell you what books to read. I'll direct you to the right direction. And so many times uh, when I'm thinking of specific research, I'm like, oh, I know which book you should read. And I have tons of books from here in my office, like books in my basement um, where you're just like, I got the right book for you. And sometimes the book comes back to you and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, I'm never upset about it because I'm, oh, I always know it's in hands that people want to use it. Um, and there's nothing like the, a book, a fresh book in your hand where you're reading it. And that's where the PhD comes in, knowing the books, knowing the research that goes behind it, whether it's Maxine Green, whether it's Pinar, whether it's Giraud, whether, you know, it's all these people before you that have started this wonderful, wonderful work that now that I am using in my work now as a superintendent um, and who now my my colleagues in uh, higher education tell me like, it's just so different because you're in, in higher ed, you're just teaching um, how to become a teacher, how to become a principal. And you're talking about like the curriculum studies of it. And here you're actually doing the work uh, of all of that um, and utilizing that research behind it. So I really wanted to, to kind of do the both uh, behind it to get the understanding and the practice um, and knowing which books that you use. Um, to this day in my leadership, anything I do, there's, there's a book behind it, um, which many times my leaders look at me and they're like, oh, she's going to bring a book. <laughs> she's she's going to have to talk to us about some book. And I know my husband, who's not in education, has told me, you are the worst boss ever because you're making them read. And he's like, my boss made me do that. He's like, I'd be quitting immediately. So, you know, I'm in education. It's what we do. Beautiful. So um, I have never met a superintendent who has not said something like being a principal was the best job. So let me ask you, what are one or two things that you miss about being a principal? Ooh. Oh my God, there's so much. Um, first of all, I hate to say it like your boots on the ground, but really that's what it is. Um, and you're seeing that magic happen every single day. The work that the teachers and you are doing collaboratively, um, the discussions that come out of it, like it's brainstorming and then it's put into action. And then your teachers are making it happen and you're in the classrooms with them. Um, <clears throat> and then you see it happen through the children. And then your partners, like your co-educators are the parents. Yeah. Um, those are your co-educators. Those are your partners. And when you have that fluidity between how your teachers are moving, it's, and then your, your students are, and then your parents. It is such magic to see it happen from the beginning of the year, <clears throat> sorry, to the end of the year. And I'm gonna drink some water. No, go ahead, go ahead. It is um, just remarkable. And then the celebrations that happen, and the celebrations about children, like that's the best thing, like to see the success of children. It's not celebrations of adults, it's celebrations of children. And I know from speaking with my teachers when I was a principal, we were always like, what are celebrations we're gonna do? <clears throat> what are we gonna honor? And how are we gonna honor some volunteers? How are we gonna honor our parents? Because 
that's that's where we felt um, the most grateful for. And then we got those celebrations back that we were able to party afterwards and say, wow, how much growth we made um, <clears throat> just in one year, in a few months, um, and monitoring that constantly. So I always looked at us as like physicians, like actual physicians, where, you know, you knew what, what the problem was, you monitored it, you discussed it, you tweaked it, you you tried certain things, you know, like whenever you have some medication, you're like, let's see if this works. No, you give a little bit of dosage, a lot of dosage. Um, and that's how you maneuvered it. And then you're like, yeah, now it's working. You, you see children learning quickly. Um, and yeah, are there some downfalls? Yes. But then when you got over the hill, you're just like, oh my God, I did that? We did that together? Um, it was just so great. And then just sitting there and celebrating children at the last day of school, because we used to have clap outs. Mm. Um, and these, and we did it together at, as a school. So these clap outs would happen first. Kindergarten would have their end of the year um, celebration, that last day of school. And it was in the beginning of the school year. I mean, the beginning of this day, they would leave, parents would leave. And then they had this, um, we would have it at the zoo. And then they, the children would have free realm of the zoo with their parents. I would come back to the school. We would have our celebrations for our children where they would get like attendance awards, academic uh, awards, athletic awards. It was like a two hour celebration. Parents would come. And then I would go with my um, my first grade teacher uh, who would then, because our, our kindergartens had left already. And so my first grade teachers had moved their children to second grade already mm. because it was like step up. And so my first grade teachers would come with me and the office people and anybody who right now who wasn't connected to children, we would go to second grade and the, they were first graders going into second grade and we would then dismiss them and we would all go out into this one doorway and clap and we had our mask out and we had a noisemakers and clap them out. And the parents would be out there waiting for them, cheering their mom like they were coming on a football field. And then the second grade teachers would come on with us, go to third grade, and we would do the same. And remember, those third graders were second graders moving up. We'd clap them out. And then we would move on to each grade level. And there were increments of five minutes. So that by the time we got to our eighth graders, who were the seventh graders, they had the entire school behind them. And we would clap them out. And we would have ribbons that said the class of. So in this year, it would be the class of 2023. And the entire school will clap them out and cheer them on and say, this, this is our class of 2023. And we would have the entire community outside cheering them on. After we were done, I'm not kidding. After they were done, we had these tricycles. All my teachers, everyone's there. We would have these tricycle races yeah. because we were done with school. And we were like, it's time for our tricycle races. And we would go down the hallway and race um, and just have a ball knowing that we finished and did it successfully and our children were clapped out and we were ready to have a little bit of rest and get back to it in about two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that kind of feeling you don't necessarily get because you could go ahead and suggest that to your principal saying, let's have a clap out. But those are just suggestions. You don't want to be micromanaging that. Yeah. Um, you want your principals to kind of develop their own, like what are they doing? Because it has to come from them. And so it's a little bit different as a superintendent or as a chief of schools. You just kind of guide them and you don't get the feeling of that last day of school. You don't necessarily get the feeling of what's happening within with the teachers because you're only there visiting sometimes and, and guiding the principal. And they invite you every so often to be part of, you know, of grade level meetings or being in the classroom. And children don't necessarily know you. They're like, oh, yeah, you're that lady that comes every so often. Um, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, I think I remember you. Um, and you do get to meet some parents who get to know you a little bit better. But other parents, not necessarily. Um, they know your name, but 
don't necessarily have a relationship with you. It's a very, very different feeling. And being a principal, you're in everything, in everything you do. Um, and, um, you know, it's because of that leadership of a principal that things really happen. And I, I'm, not, I'm I really want to reiterate that you need good principles to really do the work. It's, it's not about the superintendent or the district office. It's those principles. And if you have the right principle there, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Amen. My final follow-up question uh, for this beautiful introduction, I'm learning so much, uh, is um, after so many years in Chicago Public Schools, you transition to um, a, a suburban district as a superintendent. Um, uh, there's people in the trenches that uh, might be switching or they have switched already. What lessons have you learned about switching from one district to another? Uh, what advice do you have uh, for the listeners and viewers? Well, first of all, um, the suburbs is not CPS. Um, so I'll, I will say Chicago Public Schools prepares our people well. Um, our leaders in regards to um, understanding um, the school improvement plans, to understanding, looking at data. Um, and then when you go to the suburbs, I discovered a lot of it was being done just at the district level. And the principals were not privy to any of that. Um, and that was um, different for me to kind of understand like the, the heavy came from there. Um, but I feel like that that strips the power from the principal as well. Um, so just that's a, something to prepare for. Um, there's the also the, what is happening within our communities. Although Chicago, there are so many different neighborhoods. There's a lot of commonality within those neighborhoods. And in the suburbs, it, it's very different. Um, so get to know your community well, get to know, um, the businesses and how they are important to that community. Um, because there are different owners within the community that, um, are voices in the district, the school district and, um, our, our children and our families visit and, you know, our patrons to that business. And you, you don't even realize how, how powerful they are when it comes to what's happening in the schools. Um, get to know, you know, the, the library, any community centers, the village, understand how the TIFs work. Um, that's huge in, in, the, in the suburbs. Um, and more importantly, get to know if you are an elementary uh, superintendent like I, I am, Get to know your, your, you know, I hate to use feeder school because it sounds like we are, are, are feeding our children, um, like they're eating them up. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the high schools that they're going to get to know what's happening there. And then all the other um, districts that are feeder schools and who they are and what they're doing in their districts because they are, they are allies and they become your friends. And there's a lot of things they're dealing with that you're dealing with. And one way to kind of support when our children go into high school and what they're doing. So those are things that, um, you know, I think in Chicago, I was an elementary principal. Um, I knew of other, I mean, I would talk to the other principals and, you know, my, my feeder school was Kennedy High School. Mm -hmm. And so I would talk to them all the time. But there were so many similarities because we were in Chicago public schools. Yeah. This is very different. You know, there it's just it's not the same where because everyone is leading their district so differently. So you really need to understand uh, what the priorities are in those schools to understand what our children will be going into into high school. Beautiful. Uh, great advice. Thank you so much. Uh, my next question is uh, like in back to the future. If you could go back in time to any of the positions you have held in the past. What would the Elizabeth of today tell the Elizabeth of back then? 
Um, I'm actually, I know this is funny, but I'm actually going to go all the way right back to being a student. Ooh. My position of being a student. Tennis. Um, Because you're in a learning stage and the, the world just seems so big and you're just like, how am I going to tackle it? And if I could go back to that person, I would say, yes, it's going to be hard. Um, but don't try to go through it too quickly. Um, take in those moments of hardness, of difficulty, and be loving to it. Um, and, and take in that moment of what are the moves that you are doing. And then the second thing I would tell myself as a student is um, start building your support system from that point on. Because um, in your trajectory, you are going to know people from your past life who are going to be so instrumental in your future life. And you may not have been friends with them before, and you may not have spoken to them. Get to know them more. Don't be as shy as you were. Go up to them, talk to them, and you will find that you will just have a better time in, in your support systems because they'll become support, whether it was it's in the political realm in, in the work that you do in the um, I need a shoulder to hold on, you know, to cry on to I need someone who has that curriculum instructional background to how do you balance work life? Um, there are so many people out there and there's a lot of good people out there that if you just get to understand them a little bit more, they are going to be your support system. And as a student, you have to start there. I feel like I started later um, when I finally went into my profession and I should have started when I was a student. That's a great advice, especially uh, me being a father, I'm always trying to advise my children. That is a great quote I'm gonna tell them. Um, Elizabeth, think about the most influential books. If you had to gift two of them, one fiction and one nonfiction, which ones uh, will they be? You you can't just tell me to give one. <laughs> That is so not fair. Um, all right. Um, I'm going to go with A Hundred Years of Solitude for my nonfiction by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I would suggest if you are uh, bilingual in, in Spanish, you should read it in English and Spanish, mm -hmm. um, not just um, English. So I've read it in both languages and you get something so different in each of them. Um, but it's such a great book about generational um, and understanding how your past is so important to your future. So read it. 100 Years of Solitude. Um, nonfiction book. I'm going to go with um, uh, a, a man's... Um, search oh, of meaning? Search of meaning. Thank you. Mm -hmm. A man's search of meaning. A man's search of meaning. I remember, um, and I thought I read every book possible, and there was one time I was really down... Um, feeling down in the dumps and I, I was trying to get out of it. And um, my husband who never really, um, he doesn't, he's not a reader. He said, you should read man's search for, for meaning. And I'm like, what? And then he pulled out the book out of nowhere and says, just read this. I read that book and it changed so much for me. Um, and, and obviously if you, you don't know the book, You know, he's in a, in a, a, a Nazi camp and um, I believe he was a dentist, right? Yeah. Um, he was a dentist mm -hmm. and he um, basically stays optimistic, even though everything around him is death and the worst thing possible. He stays optimistic and he brings that to everyone else. And it's because of his optimism that he gets through the most horrific thing that has ever happened. Um, 
and makes it through. Um, and he stays happy the entire time. And so when you think of man's search for meaning, I, I think about human. Again, going back to I'm just a human being. Um, staying optimistic and staying positive um, is what we need at this time and point of our life when everything seems to be falling and the sky is falling and people seem to be mean to one another. You see it as you're driving. I'm like, somebody cuts somebody off and then all of a sudden the fingers up and swear it. And I'm just like, was that necessary? Um, or the fights that are happening, things that you see on TV and it's never really good to see the news. Staying optimistic. Um, I go back to that book. Wow. Thank you so much. Uh, let's take a quick pause and celebrate the Teach Better community. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Elizabeth, who is or who are your biggest influences? Ooh, there's so many. Um, obviously, I could go back in the name family members, you know, from my grandfather, grandmother, to my parents. Um, but I just did a, a chapter in a book um, called Curriculum Praxis that's coming out. And I wrote about um, William H. Schubert, uh, who was a professor of mine. I just um, was able to break bread with him yesterday. Um, Phenomenal, phenomenal professor. Uh, Bernardo Gallegos, another mentor. Um, he um, always called himself a coyote. He passed away in 2019, right before the pandemic. Um, I think about him each and every day. He's in spirit with me, in spirit with many of his students. Um, and he you know, as I mentioned, he called himself a coyote. And I feel like now I'm that coyote howling to the moon, um, saying like, oh, you left uh, this earth too soon. Uh, but left many students just really talking about his work. Um, he did a lot of stuff with history and indigenous people and understanding your identity and performance. Um, I think about Cynthia Barron um, from UIC. Uh, she was such a hard cookie. Uh, but at the same time, she was an advocate for education. Um, spoke with her yesterday as well. Um, there are so many influencers. I know I'm just going to miss some. Um, but I, I, I think the most important influencers are our youth. Uh, because they are our future. And as you watch them each and every day, they influence me um, and allow me to reflect on how things are really changing and how I need to really understand where they're coming from. And they are the most powerful in what is um, movements that are happening and really are going to change the trajectory of, of the world and staying positive. So they are my biggest influencers right now. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and my last wisdom, uh, the section of wisdom question is uh, all of us, at some point, and you made reference to it, feel that we might not be good enough, that we not be smart enough, that <clears throat> especially uh, being one out of four Latina superintendents, I'm sure that the imposter syndrome is something that might attack. How do you address this and what advice do you have? So, I, you know, the imposter syndrome is a, a really interesting thing. Um, I believe I've only felt it once if I'm, um, and I don't, I don't want to sound um, like um, I'm getting like I'm a big head or anything of that sort. Um, uh, but it was one time when I started in leadership greater Chicago and I was a, a one of a few educators among other people who were like in the business field Um, medical field. And it was the first time listening to all of them. You know, they were like in white collar. And here I was, you know, an educator. And I felt like this little. 
and how what was I able to contribute? Um, and it was the first time, like, what am I doing here? How was I selected? Um, but uh, for everyone to know this, if you know your craft and you know it well, you have no reason to feel imposter syndrome. If your passion and you know that's your ministry, that imposter syndrome will never pop up. And it was the only time for me. And it, when my colleagues in Leadership Greater Chicago would walk over and talk to me and then I was able to talk about education, it was then that I realized, oh, no, 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 I need, I deserve to be here. I absolutely, the same way they could talk about how, what it is like being a lawyer, I could talk about what it's like to be an educator because this career is a very noble career and not many people can call themselves that. And so um, it was only then. And so going from a, being a coming a principal to a chief to a superintendent, I never allowed that imposter syndrome to seek in ever wow. because I, I knew it. Beautiful. I love that. If you know your craft, you know your ministry. Uh, there's no reason to feel it. That's such a great advice. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. So let's talk about productivity. As you know, being successful includes being on top of our productivity, but this means different things for different people. What does it mean to you and how do you get to do all these things um, and still live a, a fructiferous life? Um, I don't advise this to anyone because nobody could do the same thing. Like what works for you, Efrain, is not going to work for me. You know, what works for another colleague. Um, you're like, I'm not a nine to five person. Um, unfortunately, my my life, and as I mentioned, my passion is um, my, my work. And I hate to call it work because I've been calling it ministry. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm up early. Um, like the, the early bird catches the worm kind of feeling. But how I early, like how early. Oh, how early? I know I'm at my my job at seven. So for some, it's not that early. Um, when I was a principal, I was there at six. Um, so it all depends on where I'm at. Here, I'm at seven o'clock. Um, and the reason I like being there early is because um, it allows me to have that silence within the place I I'm working for, um, and I need that. I don't want to just get there when staff is getting there. I don't want to just get there when children are getting there. I need to be there to feel the place I'm at. And then, you know, once I'm there within, you know, 40 minutes or so, then I'm out and about um, trying to be in my schools, being in meetings, and it's boom, boom, boom from there. I use a calendar. I live by my calendar, but I'm also very flexible with my calendar when it comes to children, when it comes to families, and then when it comes to my leaders. They're the only ones that can change it. Like vendors cannot change it. Um, my family can only change it if it's an emergency, but other than that, they don't even change it. Um, they can't even call me during my work time. You know, after five o'clock, I'm still working, but that's the only time they can call. So, um, and that's how I work. And so, there are times where I'm working till nine, 10 o'clock at night. Um, and there's other times I'm home at six o'clock and I'm ready for dinner. I'm ready for a walk. I'm ready to just like sit and watch nonsense TV. That's um, not about uh, like criminal stuff. It's about fictional stuff. Um, science fiction normally, you know, it's Mandalorian. Uh, so <laughs> it's you know Ted Lasso, that kind of stuff. That you know, bringing the the different you know that kind of stuff. I don't want to watch real life things. I want things that are like gonna make me laugh. Um, and then on the weekends, it's about my family. It's about my my parents. It's about my my daughter who lives here and my son who lives in another state. You know we. We talk on the phone, um, my brothers and sisters. My weekends are about them. And then normally around Sunday, I could feel it dwindling down. And then it's work again at a certain time. And it goes all the way till I hit, you know, Friday. Um, 
my um, Ayala's work, the Illinois Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents, it's coming to an end. Um, my presidency is is ending um, um, at the end of June. Uh, we'll have a new president. I'm pretty positive it's going to be someone from the board. Um, and it's time for them to take the torch and take Ayala's to a new level. I did my three years. I feel very good about the three years. But I'm still doing the Ayala's work. So sometimes it's on the weekends. Uh, we have our next one on the 22nd. Uh, the spring con con uh, conference that's happening. Um, it'll be my last one. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about handing the torch and um, swearing in the new board members and, um, you know, working just on my superintendency now. Um, there are other things I want to do right again. Um, as I mentioned, I, I have that chapter that I wrote for um, um, Teacher Press and that's coming out. So I want to continue writing. Um, I like writing a lot. And eventually, not just doing chapters in books, but eventually getting that one book out. And it may be Amen. you and I, Efrain, we could partner. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Get a book out that I know that we can do. Um, yes. Yeah. It, it, I'm excited about doing writing. Um, Beautiful. And then knowing the people that we know are behind us, the and bringing them out in ancestry saying, help us with writing this book. Let me ask you, when you when you write, uh, it could be chapters, it could be for a book or, or, or newsletters for your, for your uh, district, uh, what is the process for you to sit down and do this? You know, uh, some people put music, some people put candles. Uh, what, what happens behind the scenes before we see the actual product? Um, Honestly, so depending if I'm writing for my community, I think about <clears throat> what has happened within the week, within the quarter, that is really important, and what is going to happen in the future, that that needs to happen. Um, and so I write in regards to um, making sure it's positive, making sure that they, they know the trajectory we're going through, the goals that we're hitting, um, and what we haven't. It's about transparency. And so you really need to bring that out. Um, and in talking about what we've accomplished through dates, um, people like to see those milestones. When it comes to, um, so I'm thinking articles I have written mostly in science um, <clears throat> or my life. I talk about my life. Um, I need to sit in a space where things are other stuff is done. And so that I could have like a blank space and say, okay, I'm going to sit here. Um, I have a pad of paper and I write bullet points down that need to be spoken of. Um, I also think of quotes. Um, I'm huge with quotes, quotes that have come up, quotes that I have used, other quotes that I don't know of and I will might be looking for to inspire me, um, to get me through the writing. Uh, there's a lot of them that are out there. Um, Brene Brown, as I mentioned, are big ones that I use um, from her. Amanda Gorman is another one. She's been awesome. I've been using a lot of her quotes. Um, Maya Angelou, Michelle Obama. Um, I'm going to women and women of color. Um, Frida Kahlo, you know, um, to, to really get me energized in my writing. Um, and then I go back to people have told me things, you know, um, Sylvia Garcia was a mentor of mine before I became a principal. And I remember her telling me how to tough it out and, you know, not to let things get to me. I think about my grandmother um, who had these really cra crazy dichos in Spanish um, that I go to a lot of times. Um, I don't even think like she would say things like come gato seco, you know, or or um, uh, gato frito. And I'm like, who is this gato frito? And, and you know, like, why is she always you know, like killing this, this cat? <laughs> you know, why are we eating this cat? But she would do it like, to, you know, to get strong, like who cares about it? You know, and, you know, I use it to this day, uh, you know, that she would it was just kind of funny sayings. And these dichos, these sayings, 
are what I use to get me inspired to write. Beautiful. You know, Steve Jobs said that life only makes sense when you look back and connect the dots and you make the same comment when you will advise you yourself when you were a student that everything that we do is a lesson. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Any last thoughts you would like to share with the listeners and viewers of the show? I think the, my last thought to everyone is just practice kindness in everything you do and love will come out um, and kindness and love is just so infectious the same way negativity can be. Um, and the more we, we provide the kindness and love and positivity, it, it, it multiplies. So let's keep doing that. Beautiful. There you go, Elizabeth Alvarez. Thank you so much for being in the show. Gracias a usted. Thank you. Uh, yes. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Epaim Martinez. Chulu. And I love that production. Chulu out.